Coming up on Two Old Farts Talk Sci-Fi, the sports edition. Pod racing, baseball in cornfields, all the latest from the world of rollerball. Will we get an upset in this year's death race? For the second year in a row, Machine Gun Joe has splattered the scoreboard first. We jump across the pond to check in with Villarreal's Yellow Submarine. And we flash back to the great Superman versus Muhammad Ali bout of the millennium. All of this on this edition of Two Old Farts Talk Sci-Fi. Welcome to Two Old Farts Talk Sci-Fi. I'm David Clank. I am Troy Arkin. And this is our first look at sports and games and science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Um, I was going to call this uh, sports in the year 2525, but maybe the spec sports spectacular. What do you think of that, Troy? Spec. I like it. I like it. Get specky with it. We should get some shirts for that. All righty then. Uh, this uh, is uh, part one of a two-part episode. And these two episodes are the last episodes of season four. Uh, for some reason, our seasons are 14 episodes long. And don't ask me why. It just happened to be that way. But anyway, so yeah, this is season four uh, because uh, with 14 episode seasons, we had three seasons of 14 is 42. And then our eighth episode of season four was our 50th. If you remember our 50th special. Um, and I do. Yeah, it, yeah. And we may talk uh, maybe at the end of these this two part or just because it is the end of the season. We'll take a break uh, of a few months and then we'll be back in September or October for season five. Expect a lot of great things in season five, and we'll be updating and doing all sorts of things to uh, improve an already um, great podcast. Okay, maybe not. Um, we are recording these uh, two episodes on Monday, May 29th, uh, 2023, and part one is scheduled for broadcast on Saturday, June 24th, and part two on July 8th. Uh, we do not have any special guests for this episode. Before that, Troy will give us a spoiler alert. All right, please stand for the playing of the spoiler alert. Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Thank you. We also had to doff our caps, whatever. Oh, that's right. Oh, and uh, let the listeners at home know that um, in honor of, well, this, our sports uh, episode, I am uh, decked out in my Bill the Spaceman Lee uh, baseball duds um, and circa his time with the uh, Montreal Expos. So so there you go. I'm, I'm partly dedicating the episode to Bill the Spaceman Lee. Yeah, it's very uh, impressive to see. Uh, this is, of course, a podcast. It's not a webcast, but I can actually confirm 
um, I think that was uh, used in um, Star Trek: The Motion Sickness when Ilea uh, <laughs> uh, or, what, or, or whatever her name was says confirm. But um, yeah, and that's quite cool because you got the whole Lee and you got number thirty-seven. You got him on the back, like you got the whole thing and the cap, the actual. And that was a sad day when the Montreal Expos were no longer the Montreal Expos. Oh, it was especially you know they had the best record in baseball in nineteen ninety four when the strike shut them down, and so potentially you could have had the Blue Jays winning in ninety two, the Blue Jays winning in ninety three, and potentially the Expos winning in ninety four, um, which I don't think uh, baseball would have been that happy about. And I almost said I've been so you know you and I have been doing so much uh, sort of homework for this episode that I almost said Gary Batman wouldn't have been happy. Gary Bettman is not the commissioner of baseball, but the commissioner of hockey. So I don't really know if Gary Bettman would have cared at all um, yes. if, if the Expos won. Um, all right, he, let's keep going then because, um, yeah, we're all docked. And I have an old Toronto Raptor, like very early cap, which doesn't yeah, fit my head anymore. Very sweet. It's like definitely 1990s uh, era like when they were an expansion team. Yeah, I think they have a better understanding of what T-Rexes actually, or in this case, Raptors, looked like. Because that's changes over the decades as they think. Right. They think, oh, some of them had feathers and some of them looked like this or whatever. But, you know, every decade you get a better version of what dinosaurs may have looked like. And I know this is not really the place to go on a diatribe about things like... um most of the major sports having uh, a birth in Canada or as the result of a Canadian. I won't get into that in any detail, but I will say that uh, as far as I recall, that the first NBA game was between the Toronto Huskies in the 1940s and some other team, some other team that wasn't Canadian. I don't know. Yeah, and part of the history of, of I think, basketball, it's, it's the guy's name is Naismith or something. That's right, yeah. And there's he that was also heritage the moment. Oh, he was? Oh, oh, oh. no, no. <laughs> wow. So anyways, uh, thanks, Troy, for the spoiler alert. We've sort of digressed. We put the die and digress there. Yes. Um, we were recording this session via Zoom. Uh, Two Old Parts Talk Sci-Fi is a look back to when we fell in love with this speculative genre to recall these times with fondness and affection. Um, strangely enough, I didn't even prepare a quote uh, for this, but I think we may at some point, I'm so, uh, sort of hoping to, I haven't mentioned this to you yet, but there's this wonderful quote that just makes it, it's, it's kind of interesting because we will get into field of dreams at some point, but in all the write-ups and all the things about it, it's almost seems like it's split between the sexes kind of thing. It's almost like guys are the one, you, you know, you're, if you're sitting with your guy kind of thing and, and, and tears are coming to his eyes and he's just getting all misty because of the whole thing with playing catch with his father and just the whole right. ending of the film. And you think, is that more, that touches, you know, that even though it's just powerful and emotional for anyone, that whether or not it's us, you know, growing up with baseball, or at least some of us, um, you know, just recalling those times. Yeah, you know, I think that's probably true up until, until a certain point. But I think with the involvement of, uh, you know, there was a certain uh, time probably in the 90s when uh, more girls were welcome into playing sports with 
with their friends and their brothers and everything. And now it's like pretty even. Um, it's great actually when you watch um, sports broadcasts now. I'm thinking right now, again, sorry that I'm being very Canadian centric here, but Hockey Night in Canada, um, the panel is almost always like a 50 50 split now or close to it. There's a, at least, you know, one woman uh, per. Uh, panelist um, on on most sports shows now. So it's nice that we've sort of gone beyond that. And I'm sure a lot of uh, girls will have either had that experience of playing catch with either their dad or their mom. Um, and we'll be able to relate to that, um, that scene, I think. I was thinking, Dave, before we before we go on, and especially because it's their sports episode, I was going to do a quick little either-or exercise for us, which we sometimes do, and it's a way for us to sort of limber up, to just, like, get our minds and uh, our tongues flowing. And um, so I have a sports version of either-or, if you would like to give that a bit of a shot, Dave. There's no wrong answers. Absolutely. I don't think there'll become a day when I actually say, no, I don't think so. This is very, reminds me a bit of the Smothers Brothers who were playing some folk music and one of the guys would say, take it. And then the younger kid said, no. And there's this folk tradition where if you say, take it, you have to take it. So right. uh, setting this up, of course I have to take these. Questions. Okay. There you go. It's <laughs> like good. It's like good improv. Yeah. You, know, yeah. you, you don't ever say no to your partner. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, so we've done this uh, before. I, I remember like our, one of our, uh, uh, Ones that comes to mind is when we were at the cottage and we were doing things like, you know, either or cream soda or root beer, hot dogs or hamburgers, that type of thing. So this is our sports version, Dave. Um, are you ready for it? Yeah. And to be uh, honest with the audience, um, I have not prepped for this, but when reading the notes and pasting them into the thing, I suddenly noticed some of the questions. So I quickly went past it and made sure I saw a few of them. I don't even remember them now. But I will just quickly, like the moment you throw them out there, I'll just pick one of them and we'll just keep going. Okay, so here we go. Number one, Dave Keon or Daryl Sittler? Daryl Sittler. All right. Gary Carter or Larry Walker? Gary Carter. Okay. Field of Dreams or Bull Durham? Field of Dreams. Uh, this is related to, well, obviously basketball, but also Space Jam, which is probably one of the films we'll talk a little bit about. Michael Jordan or LeBron James? Michael Jordan. Fenway Park or Wrigley Field? Fenway Park. The frozen tundra of Lambeau or Notre Dame Stadium, South Bend, Indiana. I think I'll go with Lambeau on that one. Okay. Um, see, I, would, I grew up a good Catholic boy, so I would want to go to, to South Bend probably. You, ha you have a choice here. You are offered a luxury box with an open tab for either Game 7 of the World Series or the Super Bowl, which would you choose? I think I would pick the Super Bowl. I'm sort of hoping that the Bills would be in it. But, of course, if it was a World Series game, Game 7, and the Toronto Blue Jays were playing it, I think I would pick that number one over just about anything. Okay, so what would you prefer? Uh, just a regular game you're at? Uh, buffalo wings or fully loaded nachos? I think I would go with the wings. Okay. What would your walk-up song be if you had to choose one of these two? Eye of the Tiger or Tom Sawyer by Rush? 
I think I might have to go with Tom Sawyer. <laughs> okay. What, which, which do you think is a worse walk-up song? Feelings by Morris Albert or All By Myself by Eric Carmen? I'm going to go with the third choice, Having My Baby. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> that is a good one. Uh, your team wins the coin toss. Do you kick or receive? Um, I like to start with the ball, so I would receive. Okay, well, there you go. And I, I guess on that note, we'll soon be kicking off. Um, today, we're going to be uh, talking about a lot of films uh, and shows and sports-related genre things and genre-related sports things. But we will uh, definitely be getting into Death Race 2000 and Rollerball. Both films came out in 1975. So, David, I've put together for you a list of uh, sports championships from 1975, just to put people in the mood. And, and if you lived through it, you'll, you, you, I guess you'll remember this. Um, so in 1975, Ali defeats Joe Frazier in the Thrilla in Manila on October 1st, 1975. In the NBA, the Golden State Warriors swept the Washington Bullets when they were still called the Bullets pew, 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 in four games. Uh, in the Super Bowl, the Steelers beat the Vikings 16 to 6. Uh, up here in the Great White North, eh, the uh, Grey Cup was played between Edmonton and Montreal. And this is a low scoring affair. Edmonton uh, won that one 9 to 8. Uh, the Stanley Cup, back when the Broad Street Bullies were winning cups, uh, Philadelphia beat the Buffalo Sabres. Uh, in six games. And I'm looking at that, and the Sabres had only been around for a couple of years at that point. But I guess that happens all the time now, right? Um, and at one of the classic World Series of all time, the Reds beat Boston in seven games. Um, and that's like, you know, the Carlton Fisk, Johnny Bench, and the... Well, the Big Red, big red Machine, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that, that famous uh, Carlton Fisk home run, with him, you know, wishing it, wishing it, like, you know, go, just go ball, go. Uh, across the pond, the FA Cup, we had uh, West Ham United beating Fulham two to nothing. Uh, Jack Nicholas. I always want to say Jack Nicholson when I approach that too quickly. Jack Nicholas uh, won the Masters. And also in hockey, this was the era of the WHA, the World Hockey Association. Right. And right. Uh, Gordy Howe's Houston Arrows swept the Quebec Nordiques in four games to win the Avco Cup. Um, and, and that's your sports from 1975, Dave. Over to you for weather. Yes. And uh, talking about one, I don't know if this has been repeated or whatever, but the fact that Gordy Howe played on a line with his sons, Mark and Marty, back with the Hartford Whalers back in the early 80s, you think, wow, um, you know, how many times can you actually play in, at the top sport in your profession with, you know, like a son or daughter, like, like with, with your own um, child? It just, you know, it's kind of incredible. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. Yeah. Um, also, I think in Gordy Howe's last... Um, um, 
all-star game, he was actually the best player on the ice. Um, he really played a strong game and he was already in his 50, early 50s, I think at the time. I just, I just want people to know if you're, you know, listening to this episode, you're going, what is going on? Why are they talking about sports? Well, it's not just sports, but it's again, the sort of crossing over of sports into genre and genre into sports, kind of like the, uh, the uh, what is the Reese's peanut butter cups ads of our childhood? You got chocolate, my peanut butter. You got peanut butter, butter my sports. My no, you got chocolate, my peanut butter. You got peanut butter, my chocolate. You got sports in my genre. You got genre in my sports. I almost said shorts there. That would be also kind of weird. You got peanut butter on my chocolate. Well, you got chocolate in my peanut butter. Bravissimo. Two great yeah. tastes that taste great together. Reese's Peanut Butter Cup. Real milk chocolate. Good old-fashioned peanut butter. Reese's Peanut Butter Cup. There was a time when the world of sports and science fiction were like parallel universes that rarely, if ever, intersected. Each had their stereotypes and tropes. Jocks were numbskull, cow-tipping frat boys, while sci-fi nerds wore glasses and were girl-phobic Doctor Who factoid-spouting fanboys. And it seemed never the twain would meet. Now, David and I lived through that time, yet we were the anomalies. We were both fans of genre films and fans of sports. And we're here today to examine the links between the two. Now, both sport and film-going book reading fulfills similar functions and that is to pass time to entertain and to speculate on what could be both can be enjoyed privately in the comfort of your own home or among large throngs of people both encourage us to cheer for the good guys and to deride the perceived villains I once had a friend who loved sci-fi but she hated sports and she noted that sports fans mock sci-fi fans for dressing up as their favorite characters uh, and she made a note that you know jocks do the exact same thing going to games wearing jerseys of their favorite players thankfully these two disparate worlds are now much closer than ever so today david and i examine many of the times sports and genre films and fiction have co-mingled so that's what we're doing Excellent. So one of the things that we do in our episodes is talk about our sort of first experience of whatever the topic is. Like we just recently did The Thing. Uh, and any times we referred to the movie The Thing, we had to uh, just refer to it. And anytime we said, oh, well, you know, the thing about watching that film, then we'd have to take a drink. Um, but the first experience of sport in the speculative realm. I, I don't know, Troy, if you remember, like actually seeing somehow sports being in something that's science fiction, fantasy, and horror. What's sort of your first memory of them being sort of commingling? Wow, that is a good question. It's funny. I was I, at first, I thought you were going to go the route of like you know big sports memory, but um, were the two. Cross well, you can do that over. too if you want. Well, well, let me. Let's. No, we should probably stick to the. Uh, the brief here, I guess. Um, okay. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you the one that like made an impact. There may have been other ones or likely were. Um, but, um, I, I guess there's two and they probably go back to comics. 
Um, and I'm going to cheat because I have some notes here. So I'm going to actually just try to find it because I forget the years right. Um, well, one of them was there was in 1976, um, it was issue number 10, December 1976, of a DC comic called Strange Sports Comics, which was an ongoing title. Um, and so they would often just have like these weird sports stories, as the title suggests, Strange Sports Comics. But uh, December 76, they ran a story with, um, it was called the Heroes versus Villains baseball issue. And on the cover, there's an image of a large baseball with, um, I think, Superman and Luther um, kind of like punching each other. And then all of the other like Justice League and members of uh, the Legion of Doom on the other side uh, with like baseball gear. And that totally drew me in. Like I had never seen anything like this. Um, and the whole story is these two playing a baseball game. And at the very back of the comic, on the inside back cover, there was a uh, basically like a box score of the entire game. So it would have like, you know, Batman doubles, uh, Robin uh, thrown out at the plate you know, type of thing. And it would say who threw the, who threw it and who was playing each position. Um, and anyway, I, I thought that was just amazing because that was around the time that I was just becoming a big baseball fan. I was an Expos fan because the Jays weren't in, in existence yet. They were given a team in 76, but didn't come to town until April 77. Um, and so I was kind of like gaga for baseball at that point. Uh, anyway, that's probably the one, really, David. A little later on, there was Muhammad Ali versus Superman uh, in a comic, which was also cool. And probably, I guess, Bionic Woman, uh, Jamie Summers was a tennis pro, and I thought that was kind of cool, too. How about you? Oh, that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, so for me, it might, it may even have been uh, Rollerball. Because that was uh, sort of a mid-70s kind of thing. I'm not sure how many sports-related I would have to have thought about. Because I just threw this question in. These are the kinds of things we normally um, look at. But Rollerball was such, like, it was one of the earliest, like, it was just basically, that's the sport. That's the film. The whole film is that game. Just like Hunger Games, you know, that whole competition is a large part or a good right. portion of the film. It's basically um, centers around it so iconically, just like Field of Dreams does, um, where you've got such a thread and such a, a, a link throughout it. It was such an affecting thing watching it again, like watching Rollerball again and remembering some of the scenes, even though I hadn't seen it in 30 years. In the not too distant future, wars will no longer exist, but there will be Rollerball. <laughs> Imagine a world without nations. A few of us making decisions on a global basis. Controlled by corporations. Sickness, no needs, and many luxuries. A society that has abolished love and hate, aggression, and individuality. And replaced them with the most fantastic entertainment of all time. 
televised to two billion hypnotized viewers. It is more than a game. It is rollerball. James Conn, John Houseman, rollerball. Rated R. I know that I had seen uh, probably, I guess it definitely was on television. Uh, maybe it was its like network premiere, but I didn't, wouldn't have seen it when it came out in 75. So just for folks, uh, for their information, uh, the film was directed by Norman Jewison. I have a typo there. I just noticed um, Norman Jewison, Canadian, but I'll stop with that shit. Sorry. Um, uh, the film was released in June of 1975. Rollerball was made for $6 million. It made $30 million at the box office. Uh, the film starred James Caan as uh, Houston Rollerball superstar Jonathan, as well as John Houseman as team owner Mr. Bartholomew. Other than the futuristic titles, we have no opening credits. Uh, rather, we get a loud rendition of... Uh, a box uh, to- Toccata in D minor and jump right into 15 minutes of exciting rollerball action. Essentially, the game is roller derby, or is that Darby? Roller derby <laughs> with motorcycles, a steel ball, and that's a vicious. You thought those uh, Indian rubber balls in cricket were hard, but uh, the steel ball was used to score points with. Um, and I'll just do one more here. We learned that Jonathan, uh, or I always refer to him as Jonathan E., is yeah. at the top of his game and is the best that ever played. Yet for some mysterious reason, and this is a kind of cool thing. It also ties in with Hunger Games and stuff like that. When you get that iconic figure in a sport that they don't want the, you know, the star athlete to sort of become the symbol. Yet for some mysterious reason, he is being forced into retirement. So we also learn that in this dystopian future world, nation states have been replaced with corporate states. Before rollerball matches, spectators stand for the corporate anthem, not the national anthem. Jonathan E. refuses to step down. The corporate leaders see him as a champion of individualism and a threat to their corporate rule. So they decide he must be killed playing rollerball if he will not resign. They make future games no holds barred and free of penalties. Yet, in the final match, all contestants are killed, except Jonathan, who remains victorious. I just wanted to, to mention, David, you, you were talked about the uh, box Takata in D minor. And as I was watching it, uh, re-watching it today, uh, it occurred to me that I'm, I'm sure that is the influence of Kubrick. Um, because, you know, not only did Kubrick really bring classical music to sci-fi and all things genre with 2001, but he sort of doubled down on it with um, Clockwork Orange, uh, where, again, like almost, I guess, all of the music, I believe, was sort of a synthesized version of, of classical music. And I think, I don't know, how do you feel about that? Do you think there's something to that? I think so. Uh, and I also noticed that I think uh, James Horner 
I I'm trying to remember if he was the one that was had some of the music in Field of Dreams, but you get this sense of almost like an orchestral thing in that film that just adds to the beautiful and the melodic and the sense of wonder. Yeah. Um, I was really impressed with that 15 minutes of gameplay that we, that we see. And um, I, I don't know if there is any roller derby on anymore, but it was kind of ubiquitous when we were kids, right? Like it was, was on every weekend alongside of wrestling um, on Saturday afternoons. But yeah, that uh, and bowling. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, uh, and I just actually you just made me think of, for some reason, um, uh, Running Man, where they had like climbing for dollars, which is like a parody of bowling for dollars, which is another thing that we all grew up with in the 60s and 70s. Um, but uh, yeah, it was just great to, to see that action too. And it's sort of like, well, you know what, rather than us tell you about the game, which is kind of what happens in Harry Potter with Quidditch. You know, they, we do see Quidditch, but we get this sort of like breakdown of the rules um, before we see the gameplay. This says, screw it, just watch it for 15 minutes, then you'll get it. Um, and I did think that was pretty cool. Yeah, part of that, which, which it was kind of neat watching it again, because they've got this this whole circular, almost like a velodrome, like like a raised upper thing. So the kind of thing where you'd see bicycles going around on the track. So this is this whole amphitheater kind of uh, thing. But they've got these things that have opened up where the people can come out. And I was concerned they should actually lower those things so people can actually run around this surface because it's right in the middle of where people would be skating. And of course, that's what happened. Eventually, once they've had this opened up and the people all come into that middle area, they do lower these, what would be the entrance ways. And there's two of them. And that allows you to be able to, and it's a pretty vicious game. Yeah. Uh, and I think we get three instances of gameplay including that 15 minutes at the beginning and probably i don't know five to ten in the final um now you and i have discussed in the past how some films from the 70s uh you've mentioned uh i think actually you were quoting um uh rob sawyer you were talking about the French connection and how some of those films from the seventies, the pacing can be problematic for a modern audience if they're not used to uh, the flow of, of those films. Uh, and I felt that way a little bit with this at some point, because we, we go from a film that again, has this 15 minutes of sort of ultra violent action. Mm-hmm. And then we go into like almost a character study of, of this superstar player uh, who his wife is gone, has been taken away. And uh, he wants to know about her. And gradually he starts finding out things. um, And we find out things about the society. Um, But it's, um, I, I found it, it was a weird change of pace. And I don't know if that's, purely because of the change in aesthetics between now and the seventies. How do you feel about all of that, David? Yeah, certainly things have uh, sped up and it's, it's, it's difficult to have a film like that. And some of our other ones that, that we've all, you know, loved in the past, 
the pacing is just it's just a whole it's just a different era it's a different time now where you've got you know these things where you have to equip and you have to have something done and there has to be something going on all the time and you have to just you know it's just it's so hectic you know the back did you do you remember the days where you're at at home there's no of course cell phones you got the the old phone with the odd funky color and this long squiggly uh, line and you would be and there was sort of this unwritten rule that you had to answer in about seven rings right and that changed over time there suddenly it was like five then it was three and then and then eventually we had cell phones taking over and the robot overlords have almost claimed us give it another few more years but it, it was a different time you know we, we we took things a bit slower and we just had a slower pace yeah, and you know, even when you when I think about a film like Slapshot, which is not a genre related, but it's a hockey film, um, it's got great action segments. But it also, when it shows the life of the players off the ice, um, you know, it does slow down a little bit too. And and you know what, I think I do appreciate the fact that you know if that film gets made now, it's kind of dumbed down. It's kind of, uh, and it has been remade, by the way. It was remade in 2000, and it was dumbed down. Um, they did not have that sort of introspection of characters, which we have with James Caan. And, I mean, and James Caan says he, he, I mean, he passed away a few years ago, but he, he did have very fond memories of working on that film. Um, and he, he said that he thought he did the most that he could do with that character. Um, and I would agree. Oh, he's great. He's one of the more under underrated and understated actors of our time, because um, he does some. Just that film is is such a standout performance by him in a film that's that's a good film, but it's certainly not you know the top five or ten films of its of its year or of its era. Uh, he certainly did very well. I believe he was in um, a couple of the Godfather films. Um, That's right. and many other films and uh he is so good i'm also a, a fan of his son that was in the hawaii 50 series and uh those heist uh, films um oceans 11 and 12 and so on um yeah. certainly a good family of actors and of course as a king fan i've got to love him in misery now oh my goodness yes yeah, yeah. i felt that the film did a great job at predict, predicting future trends like um, libraries digitizing books, uh, the rise of corporations, the prolifer proliferation of violent spectator sports like mixed martial arts and the UFC. And again, sort of like it maybe did that a little bit better than when we saw, I noticed in Running Man, which I watched again today, how uh, there's like phones that do have the curly cords as well, even though, you know, they're imagining the future of, I think it was 2017. Um, and as well as uh, there's a point where he pulls out a box with cassettes in it. And uh, which I thought was kind of funny, unless maybe, you know, like vinyl, the cassettes are going to have a huge uh, uh, renaissance, you know, <laughs> or I guess we're past 2017. So, you know what? It kind of did around 2017. So maybe it's it was smarter than we thought. Uh, any other thoughts about uh, um, roller derby? Not roller derby. Any other thoughts? Yeah, about <laughs> rollerball. Yeah. yeah. Um, with it. I did like, like some of the memories of having seen it 30 years ago was 
just the very last sequence where you see him going as a lone guy along the track and is moving closer to the camera and that thing where he freezes in the frame that stayed with him. just that whole iconic just that image of him at that point also the friendship between the two main characters like a buddy film that stayed with me for thir- over 30 years and also when his uh i mean we've already done the spoiler alerts and this film was from 75 so it is still like 48 years ago or something like that but um when his uh close friend passes is killed the anger and the feeling that you have of when that happens is so visceral um and what he's trying to do when he says no you can't you know the, the whole thing with him having on the edge of death, basically in a coma and him saying, no, you're not going to let him go. And then the whole revenge thing and, and whatever, um, all of that kept, you know, all of that stayed with me. Yeah. And so you saw it in the theater. I don't recall if I did, because certainly those were the times when, you know, within a year or two, you would have a film just on. And and these were, you know, our our, our TVs from the 70s, you know, in very early 80s. These were these small box things where the TV itself was 50 or 60 pounds and was like a 28-inch square. <laughs> and that was a good TV when you had something like that, like that size, uh, compared to these thinner, these, you know, these uh, 48-inch and 56-inch yeah. Um, oh my God. There's... I I'm curious to to know how many of the modern TVs of a similar screen size, how many of the new ones would equal one of the old ones? Because I mean, I'm guessing it's got to be like at least ten, because they're so light now. Yeah, that I remember when I was lugging around that last really big TV I had, which I think was a 28 inch TV, and that lugging that thing around was quite something. Yeah, and there was a point at which uh, every TV, this is like uh, once you got into the 80s or so, and once uh, you were at that point in time, every TV was deeper than it was wide. Yeah. You know, it's like, and that's what made it impossible to carry on your own if it was, you know, of, of a certain size. You just couldn't do it. They had these weird tubes or cathode rays or these these kinds of things, like the whole technology of it. But this is still technology that was beyond what put put men on the moon. Eddie Arcaro for Color Track from RCA. These racing silks are royal blue, red, and Kelly green. RCA wanted me to tell you the right colors because getting the color right is what their exclusive Color Track system is all about. It's a remarkable development that actually adjusts color and keeps it on track. Before you see the color, the color track system grabs it, aligns it, defines it, sharpens it, tones it, and locks the color on track. RCA is making television better and better. We're just living in magical times right now. So should we uh, pivot over to Death Race 2000? I think so. The year 2000. America is a vast speedway. People line the streets to witness the greatest drivers on earth in a race from sea to shining sea. This is a death race. You finish first, or not at all. Death Race 2000. Every car a deadly weapon. Every spectator a potential point. country road wreck and the traffic is murder who are you anyway 
best driver on earth. I don't want you to die. He was built by the world's finest surgeons to drive the fastest car ever designed, and nothing can stop him now. Death Race 2000, rated R. Now, from what I understand, Death Race 2000 was uh, rushed by the studio that made it, uh, and I can't, I don't have a note on who that was, so that, let's just, that's okay. Um, but they knew that that Rollerball was coming, and they wanted to sort of beat uh, beat them to the punch and get a, a sports-related sci-fi film out ahead of time. So I think they were like, let's see, I think I said June. So this came out April 27th, 1975. That is Death Race 2000. Uh, so they beat them by a few months. But, I mean, it, I don't think it mattered so much, uh, you know, pre-Jaws, um, if, uh, if a film came out in the summer like jaws sort of created the whole summer uh dynamic for box office but anyway a little bit of background uh death race 2000 again came out in 75 it was directed by paul bartell um and it was produced by roger corman i made a note that the cinematography was by tak fujimoto who has done a lot of films that I like or films that are really well regarded. So he did Badlands. He did Chatterbox, um, which is actually just an odd little film on its own. Uh, Google that one. Uh, I'm not going to talk about it here. Uh, Where the Buffalo Roams, which was the first Hunter S. Thompson film. Ferris Bueller's Day Off, as well as the Jonathan Demme film, Something Wild, Silence of the Lambs in Philadelphia. He also shot The Sixth Sense. Uh, the film was made for $500,000 and it earned $4.8 million at the box office. It's kind of funny. It reminds me of um, uh, Chris Rock, who, when he heard that the, um, the Blair Witch Project was made for $50,000, he was wondering where the other $45,000 went. So uh, with this one, with $500,000, I wonder where the other... Four hundred fifty thousand dollars went, but maybe most of that was salary um, or gas thing, or gas. Yes, <laughs> tires. Yeah. Um, uh, the film starred David Carradine, um, and it's kind of—it's just so weird because I'd never seen. Like, I only watched it just this past week. Seeing him in that black getup, which almost seemed like that kind of gear for, for you know. Um, like bondage. Yeah. Yes, that that he had actually died in an auto er, uh, erotica accident, I believe. Uh, right. Which is just kind of odd seeing this for the first time when with him dressed up that way, and it was kind of interesting. I'll read the text in a second, but it, it's just um, there's just a moment where he actually takes off his mask because he's clearly been damaged and hurt in various accidents and things, and sort of put back together. And that was kind of shocking to see what was beneath the mask. But I did not expect to see that. But I don't want to actually spoil or say for the audience just in case they want to watch it. But when you see that, uh, I was just surprised. So anyways, the film starred David Carradine, who was uh, coming off the three-year hit series Kung Fu, which was a series I loved and I watched that every week, including I think it was uh, it was launched, for, that series was launched from that TV movie um, that was so great. As well as a pre-Rocky Sylvester Stallone, uh, Carradine plays a champion car racer Frankenstein, a man who has been repeatedly maimed in accidents and rebuilt. Uh, his nemesis is uh, racing mobster machine gun Joe Viterbo, 
Uh, three other drivers seek the glory of the death race championship. They are Calamity Jane, Swastika, um, uh, adorned uh, Matilda the Hun, and Nero the Hero. Now, Martin Coe, I just make a note here, was uh, uh, more famous uh, probably from the Karate Kid. Um, uh, each driver is joined by the navigator as their wingman or wing or wing woman, I guess might be the term. Um, and that was kind of interesting because I'd never seen this before. And just the fact that this, these main racers have that navigator right next to them, helping them through the course, I thought was very cool. Absolutely. Um, so the transcontinental road race takes place in the distant future of the year 2000, 2000, 2000. The object is to win the cross country race by finishing first, but drivers also accumulate points by running down citizens as they drive. I, I, I enjoyed it. it. It's a fun and dark film. Now I know that that's, pretty much what Paul Bartel does. I believe he did the film uh, Eating Raoul and a number of other sort of culty comedy films uh, in the 80s. Um, but yeah, just loved everything about it. The banter, um, the uh, the sort of indulging in the, uh, the violence, which was always... Um, both over the top, but also not realistic. It was actually, I think I, I made a note that it was like very wily coyote like, um, and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, you're allowed to enjoy this violence. <laughs> um, it's not something that is totally, uh, sadistic. Um, it's got a, a very cartoony feel to it. Um, I said that the, uh, for me, the highlight of the film uh, was Frankenstein and Machine Gun Joe when they end up in a dust-up, a Donnybrook, fisticuff exchange. Um, so this is Carradine versus Stallone. Came from Kung Fu versus Rocky Balboa, the Italian stallion. And I mean, how cool is that? That is almost as cool, if not more so, than when Robin and Bruce Lee, <laughs> right? Bruce Lee and Burt Ward uh, fighting in the Batman series. Um, or in a more realistic or real sense, we also had Bruce Lee fighting um, the American um, uh, Chuck Norris in real life in like a um wherever the hell it was um uh that this is what happens when you get old you when you're start old forgetting farts. this when you're old farts and yeah. of course uh bruce lee won that match um in the amphitheater or wherever it was or some like in in greece or something wherever it was it was a big iconic place for them to fight so yeah you're right uh, you know this is probably number two behind that big fight yeah. um Absolutely. And then, of course, Superman versus Muhammad Ali. Who could forget that one? Right. <laughs> yeah, which we'll, we'll touch on again a little later, probably. Um, there was a remake, sort of a remake in 2008. It shared the name. It was just called Death Race. And it was kind of like, uh, almost like the premise of Suicide Squad, where prisoners are forced to race. Um, and they're prisoners, I guess. Are they all prisoners in... In Running Man, David, I forget. Yeah, um, yes, I believe so. There's people that had broken the law, so they had to. Uh, they can go into the game, um, right? Yeah, Death Race um, is kind of cool because that also had like, had Joan Allen and Jason Statham in it. Um, 
And I don't think it was like, I still prefer, like I hadn't seen it until recently, but I do like that death race 2000 um, more than um, this one, but you know, to each his own. Yeah. Um, There's a line that I love that's at at the very end of the film where Carradine's character says, um, sure, it's violent, but that's why we love it. Um, And I thought the same could be said of the film. Um, It's funny, both with Rollerball and Death Race 2000, there's, um, it's the 70s. Like, it's this thing when I watch some of these films, you're so aware of the era. And like, with the nudity, um, it's just something that would just doesn't happen now in major films because studios are always trying to maximize uh, their audience. They want as many people to see these films, and so they want them all to be PG or, or something like PG. Um, so there's not going to be uh, like some of the nudity, like how the uh, there were those scenes where all the racers get the um, the body rubs, uh, and then there's actually a fight between two of the female uh, contestants. Like, I don't see that happening now, but it's so 1970s where all of that stuff was so pervasive. Well, it's all left like like that kind of thing exists a lot now, but it's it has it's left the movies and it's gone into these series like True Blood, mm, right. Game of Thrones. Yes. And and where they don't have to worry about networks. These are these are not ABC and NBC and CBS and and so on. Right. These ones allow a lot more yes. of what's going on. Now, the other thing about the violence, because this is one of the things that I think Ira Neyman was talking about, how you keep stepping up and, and it becomes a problem. Like, like each superhero film, you have to find something that's even tougher. Same thing happened with Buffy the Vampire. So where each, each season, it was a tougher opponent told she had to defeat a god or something like that. Is that with violence, it has gone up. So this, at the time, was considered a pretty violent film. But if you compare it to some of the fight sequence in John Wick and even John Wick 2 and 3 and, and so on, they have to one-up each previous one and the cycle, like Saw, the movie Saw, which I'm still a proponent and think it's one brilliant, well-crafted yeah. and such an artistic film that people who just immediately poo-poo it or just say it would be too violent, well, they haven't seen it. But right. Saw 2, 3, and 4, it becomes they have to outdo themselves, and it becomes a bit silly at this point. Right. And Saw is one of those films, too, right? and I totally agree with everything you just said there, but it's one of those films that uh, and Seven, Seven might be like this as mm. well, where it's such a grim view, viewing that you don't really want to see it again. You know, like you sort of like you watch it and you go, holy Mm. shit, that was an amazing film, but I don't, it's not like field of dreams. I don't feel like I ever want to come back and watch that. I don't know. It might be somebody's uh, comfort food, uh, but I hope not. Um, Well, what do you call the the other example? I should have mentioned this. Sorry about that is the uh, purge which I think the first one was really the, the concept of it. Like you have one day where you can kill as many people as you want and that concept and how good the film was. And it's, and a lot of people might think it's just too violent, but compared to later purges. Now there was one that was like purge election year. And I think it might've had Elizabeth Mitchell in it, who of course I would watch in anything. Um, and it turns out to be pretty good. Like, like I think they're, they're pretty good. So with something like this, with this death race, 2000, 
you can watch if you're not someone who likes violence that much i think you can't compared to what it is now it's so tamed down like this is on a scale of three out of ten compared to the films now there are six seven eight or nine like there's some scenes in the john wick film where the only reason why i can actually watch it is how orchestrate like like how much it's like an orchestra it's almost like this beautiful dance performance like it's fred astaire or jack lemon or something like that like the whole scene in the stable i think it was john wick two or three where there's all the seat the whole sequence of it. it's almost like matrix where it's just so the choreography can be breathtaking which with the violence yeah definitely um and i think you know believe it or not i've not seen uh any of the purge films uh, but I've heard that the first one is excellent. And I believe that King put that on his uh, list of favorite 21st century horror films. Mm-hmm. Um, so at some point, it maybe as we get closer to October, I will revisit that. Now, I know we're getting perilously close to our two-minute warning for episode one. Game clock at 2.01. Time for one final play before the two-minute warning. So as we approach the end of episode one, um, I, I just wanted to touch on Star Wars night here because to me that's one of the first things that, that came to mind when I realized that we were going to do this do an episode that involved sports and genre and the cross-ups because not only you know do we have a lot of films uh, that involve sports in a crucial way we also have uh, genre now being introduced to sports themselves which is kind of odd so what i'm thinking of in particular is star wars night and if you don't know i'll i'll give you a little bit of background here one of the most enduring sports genre mashups that we have now is baseball's Star Wars night. Now, minor league baseball has always relied on creative promotions to draw fans to the ballpark, be it doubleheaders or cheap beer nights or bobblehead giveaways. But at some point in the 2010s, minor league baseball, uh, also referred to as MILB, um, Minor league baseball teams began running Star Wars promotions of varying scope. Uh, in 2013, I went to one of these. Uh, I attended the Buffalo Bisons Star Wars night game against the Durham Bulls. The Bisons went all out with the promotion featuring free laser swords, swords, <laughs> free laser swords, not lightsabers, because you might get sued if you use the phrase lightsaber, but free laser swords. There were meet and greets with various Star Wars characters, including R2-D2 and Chewbacca. Darth Vader threw out the first pitch and sang Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Both teams wore modified jerseys with Star Wars crests. Um, Clips from the first six films played on the scoreboard between innings. After the game, an elaborate drama was enacted on the field involving dozens of characters from Star Wars. Many laser sword battles broke out, and in the end, the Rebels were victorious. To celebrate, the organizers set off massive fireworks display. Um, It was an incredible night, uh, and I will post the clip at some point on YouTube from uh, the video that I shot that day. 
Uh, and it's just wild because like basically everybody had a, had a laser sword. So now many minor league ball teams have adopted Star Wars days. And since that time, it's just spread. There's a, a story about Cy Young knuckleballer R.A. Dickey, uh, who was a famous Star Wars fan and genre fan in general. He's actually, he used to name his bats after characters from the Lord of the Rings. Um, so at, at the time, he was with the Buffalo Bisons, again, a minor league team. Um, and they were then a farm team of the New York Mets. Dickey was very excited about taking part in the upcoming Star Wars Day with the Bisons, but he received the call up to the show, that is to, to join the major league team. And he received the call on the same weekend as Buffalo's Star Wars promotion, and he was just devastated. So that meant that he would have to join the Mets and miss Star Wars Day. Dickey actually asked if he could join the team, the Mets, following Star Wars Day. <laughs> the, Mets, <laughs> the Mets told him to get his ass up to the, to the big leagues, pronto. Um, and that, David, is when you know you're a fanboy. <laughs> so uh, you, there's a, a, a ton of guys, uh, athletes, that are huge fanboys as well. And, in fact, he there's a famous picture of uh, Dickey wearing a Star Wars onesie that he was given by Lucasfilm. And when Harrison Ford found out about this, he was kind of jealous. He says, like, I want, I want R.A. Dickey's onesie. Why don't I have one? Um, so the success of Star Wars Day soon spread to the major leagues of baseball, and many MLB teams now feature a version of the event. I know the Jays have had it for at least 10 years now, and sometimes they have it on the same weekend as Fan Expo so that it draws fans over from the convention center uh, to check out a game and come in character. Uh, and in recent years, both the NHL and the NBA have added Star Wars days to their calendar of events. So, so there you go, David. I think this is like proof positive that these two worlds have finally come together. It's a nice way of leaving the episode. And certainly uh, next time they have one, maybe I should try to attend one. Uh, uh, I might actually want to attend a star trek day for the um but i guess there probably aren't any uh, well maybe that's that's the next thing it's sort of like the wrath of consumerism but sorry that <laughs> that's was... right that's the next generation of baseball promotions okay i've just hurt myself on that one but anyways um if that's all right i think that that could be a good way of closing out our uh, spec sports spectacular part 1 I think so. I think that basically brings us to halftime. Perfect. Yeah. We can uh, we can hit the locker room and uh, rehydrate and uh, do whatever athletes do, because I'm not really an athlete, so I wouldn't know, and uh, get ready for the second half. Very good. Now, did you want to mention some of the um, places to catch our podcast? Sure. Let's do that. Um, first of all, uh, we're on Spotify. Uh, you can always go to our actual website, which is sort of like the original article, the, 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 the mecca of uh, everything that we do. That's 2of.ca numeric2. 
um, Facebook, Too Old Farts Talk Sci-Fi. Uh, feel free to post there things that are related, please. Things that are related to our topics. Feel free to chime in on our conversations that we have there. Uh, it's a really nice uh, uh, place to sort of do something related to the show other than listen to it. But if you have listened to the show, which I assume you have, um, please uh, like, subscribe, tell a friend, uh, help make this thing a bigger thing for, for all. I am David Clink. And I am Troy Arkin. See you all for our next episode. I was going to say adventure. See you, see you all for our next <laughs> adventure I like of Two Old Farts. Talk sci-fi. Mm-hmm.